Welcome back to Bush School in Court. This is your co-host, Justin Bullock. I'm here with Greg. Hi, Greg. Hi, everybody. Good to see you. There's happy, a whole episode. Happy, happy Super Tuesday. Happy Super Tuesday. We made it. Yeah. And we're going to have, we have, we actually have live takes as things are unfolding as of five exactly. minutes ago. Exactly. What happened? Uh, uh, New York Times called Virginia for Biden, but who knows what that means in yeah. terms of delegates. And there was one other call. Oh, Vermont. Believe it or not, it was a tight race, but Bernie Sanders won the Vermont, Sanders, yeah. Vermont primary. Well, it's good to be back. The last thing people would have heard if they're following along in our feed was an episode all by myself. That's true. Uh, I missed that one on the border. Mm-hmm. I said you How were was the, the border? The border was um, a tough experience. It was interesting to see some of the consequences on the policies. It was interesting to meet with some of the asylum seekers and refugees just across the border. We give a little bit of a lecture about it in the episode that came out on Monday, the kind of intro to it. So if you're interested in that, it's our encampment series. Um, check that out. People don't realize how much activity there is on the border. Yeah, they should from listening to Raymond Robertson, our guest. Exactly, um, exactly. Just the level of commerce that goes back and forth. Exactly, and I think that, I do think politically this is the kind of thing that the further away from the border you get, the easier it is for you to believe that a wall would be a good idea along the border. Yeah, people on the I, I haven't met. I haven't met a Texas Republican who thinks that a wall is a good idea because they know how important the border is. Yeah, I don't think it's a good idea. That seems to be the consensus of anyone on the ground and most people in, in Texas, in, including people who are very strong supporters of President Trump. Mm-hmm. All right, we're getting distracted already. Uh, already. We have already surprise. We have with us one of our colleagues for the first time today, um, Fritz Bartel. Thanks for joining us, Fritz. It's very good to be here. Thank you for having me. As I mentioned to you beforehand, uh, Greg and I are going to recap a little bit of some of the political news uh, before we get started, but then we're going to dive into your research. Great. Feel free to comment or just ignore us um, to whatever degree you would like. Super Tuesday. So I think the most important thing is what happened in South Carolina. Yeah, we have a mess in South Carolina. What happened? I, well, I, I mean, if Joe Biden had lost in South Carolina, or even if he had basically tied with Bernie Sanders, I think that the, the race would basically be over. Well, I mean, we'd have Klobuchar and, and Buttigieg still in the race, probably, trying to pick up the pieces. But, I mean, the, the resounding win mm-hmm. that Joe Biden had in South Carolina last Saturday revived his campaign, drove Buttigieg and Klobuchar out of the out of the race, and uh, kind of made it a horse race again. We'll see. I mean, we'll see if it's a horse race. The fact that we just heard that the Times called Virginia for, for Biden the minute the polls closed indicates that the exit polls on, on Virginia were pretty clear that it was going to be a Biden victory. So uh, my guess is Sanders still comes out a winner in the delegate Paul for Super Tuesday, but I think if if Biden comes out of Super Tuesday, 200 delegates behind Sanders, it's a moral victory for him, and it's and it becomes a, a, a long drawn out slog to see who's going to be the Democratic nominee. I'm having 2016 flashbacks on the Republican side. Yeah, yeah, but on the Democrat side, right? As we know, oh, with down, Bernie, with Bernie and, and Hillary. Yep, one mainstream, one establishment candidate, and then Bernie there hacking away at trying to get enough delegates. Yeah, and, and, and not giving up even though it became impossible for him to get a majority. But I think maybe the most important thing 
after, you know, does Biden, does Biden keep it within shouting distance of Bernie tonight, is what happens to Bloomberg and Warren. Mm -hmm. Does Warren get out? If Warren gets out, one assumes that that aids Bernie. If, if uh, Bloomberg gets out, one assumes that helps Biden, particularly if Bloomberg starts putting his money behind Biden. So, those are, you know, the, the also-rans will be interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. I mean, my guess is if Bernie beats Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts, she leaves and endorses him. Bloomberg, he has so much money, you know, he can just keep running as a vanity project. We'll What's another see. hundred million? What's another hundred million? He's or already spent. He's already spent five hundred million dollars. Oh, up to five. Oh five hundred million dollars. Oh, and that and 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 out of sixty billion. So it's so it's not even one percent, right? It's not even one yeah. percent of his personal fortune. Well, I think it's all had the uh, unintended or intended, maybe unbeknownst to me, impact of making Joe Biden look really great as a reasonable old white guy on the stage compared to Mike Bloomberg. That's that's my takeaway. Does, does he does he look like the reasonable old white guy compared to Bernie Sanders? Uh, we'll see. Still. Or Donald Trump. Or Donald yeah. Trump. Well, yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> we'll find out. We'll, we'll, we'll set that one aside. So one thing Greg and I talked about earlier, and this is also a point of conversation uh, broadly is is what's the what is the Democrats' winning strategy? They have they have two choices. I think as we kind of laid it out, which we've highlighted in Biden and and Sanders, and it really depends on your theory of where how American elections work now. You know, in 2016, uh, the the chatter was Trump was too far outside the mainstream. He wasn't a real Republican. He was a renegade. Um, all true, by the way. Yeah, all, yeah, all true, um, and that those kind of people couldn't win. And then the Republicans... Untrue. Untrue. It turns out the Democrats uh, nominate the establishment candidate, nominate the moderate, and they lose. And so if you're, um, if you're a, a Democrat, independent of your ideology, let's say you're a Democrat, who are you even... Who are you pulling for across these two? I mean, I know who the Democratic establishment is pulling for. That's if, pretty clear. But if you want to beat Donald Trump, if that's what you're trying to pull off, it's still unclear to me who you want. If you want Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden to be the opponent. We're looking Silence at Chris. We're putting the pressure on Chris. <laughs> I think I think this is exactly it. it it's um, and it was true coming out of 2016, and I think you could say that the Democrats didn't do anything about it in terms of resolving this, this difference that you're talking about or this, uh, these options. But really, the primary process decides that, and I think either way is an enormous risk. It's, it's an odd time in that establishment candidates, so-called establishment candidates, are still very, very risky, almost as risky as the person who um, is a complete break with the kind of ideological mainstream of the party. So, um, because those types of candidates have been favored all around the world and, and were favored in 2016 here in the United States. So, um, it, it's a risk either way, and uh, we'll find out a lot more tonight about which way Democrats across the country want to go. I, I gave my theory about the decadence of the party system, right? Mm -hmm. we, 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 are in the, we are in the absolute decadence of the American party system. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Bernie Sanders' theory of the case is going to get him elected. Uh, I, I, I look at 2018 where Democrats uh, 
won over 40, switched over 40 seats and, and took the House of Representatives. Right? That, that was voters in the suburbs who had voted Republican in 2016 who switched over to the Democrats. That's what carried the day. The, the, the Sanders theory of the case that he's going to mobilize all sorts of young voters and new voters and people of color into the system. This is a guy whose entire political career was in Vermont. I know I lived there. I lived there for 19 years, the least diverse state in the union. This guy is, and, and there's no evidence in the early primaries that he's been able to mobilize new, massive numbers of new voters into the system. I think that the riskier bet for Democrats is the theory of the case that says we will mobilize hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of new voters into the system from demographics that are notoriously low on turnout like you and Hispanics, Latino voters. Uh, I think that the, 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 path, the, the, the less risky path is we almost won in 2016. If we can flip those suburban districts like we did in the, in, in the House of Representatives races in 2018, we win this election pretty comfortably. And Joe Biden is the candidate. You know, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, even Elizabeth Warren would have been the candidates, I think, to do that. But the last, the, the last real Democrat standing, and here's my personal, I'll let, I'll let my personal views <laughs> intrude on my analysis. The last real Democrat standing after, after today, when Elizabeth Warren drops out, is going to be Joe Biden. And then there's Bernie Sanders, who was never a Democrat. And I'm just not sure. I, I, I fear that the hundreds of millions of dollars that the Trump campaign has in its coffers will turn Bernie Sanders into the reddest communist since Joe Stalin. And that will scare away those suburban swing voters who gave the Democrats the House of Representatives. There you go. <clears throat> I like it. I, um, I think that uh, primaries appeal to... Um, a lot of can appeal more to the extremes and appeal more to the fervor. And so we'll see if uh, Bernie's revolution brings those people out in the primaries. Um, and, and, and if I'm wrong and Bernie sweeps, sweeps away, I will treat the podcast listeners to my Bernie Sanders invitation. Oh, all right. We'll do, we'll do, I'll do like 10 minutes of the podcast in my best Bernie Sanders. You got that faith? And I'll apologize. <laughs> Apologize. I'll apologize as Bernie Sanders. Something I'm not sure he's done. Oh, Bernie? <laughs> he, he just goes full court the whole way. Yeah, yeah. Bernie, Bernie has never he's been wrong. He's never been wrong. He did apologize, I think, for the Brady Bill vote. That's true. But that, but in Vermont lore, that's what got him elected. The reason that he won his race for the House of Representatives after running countless times and losing all the time is that the Republican incumbent voted for the Brady Bill. And Vermont's a big gun state. And, uh, and, and, Bernie, and Bernie said he was opposed to it. Well, or, I guess it wasn't the Brady Bill. It was a subsequent bill that Bernie voted uh, with the NRA for. He says it was a bad bill. But, but it was the Brady Bill that, that the Republican incumbent congressman voted for, and Bernie ran against him on that. So there's one other thing we should just mention um, before we, I guess, bother to introduce our guests, which we still haven't done 10 minutes in. 
But uh, a couple weeks ago, we were kind of having a little bit of fun at the coronavirus's expense, and oh. uh, and now Greg is keeping me from shaking people's hands. Yes, fist bumps now. Uh, <laughs> so um, the coronavirus hasn't gone away. It's continued to that's for sure spread in China and spread throughout the world. There are, I think you said, S- spread in Washington State. You know, there are nine casualties now. Nine deaths in Washington in State. Washington State. Um, and we were just discussing among the three of us. This is already. That travels already starting to be canceled both uh, internationally and the and the real question is does it bleed over into domestic travel? Um, so this is something that's going to um, I think stay with us and in two weeks, uh, conditional on us still being able to gather in public, Andrew Nazio should be able to tell us a little bit it's about true. pandemics. Our next our next guest in two weeks will be Executive Professor Andrew Nazios, the head of the Scowcroft Institute of International Affairs at the Bush School who for a number of years has been running a major project on international responses to pandemics. So this is his hour, and we'll get his wisdom. Excellent. Fritz, thanks for joining us. So what we'd like to do with guests is just give you a moment to tell us a little bit about your background, your intellectual and academic background, and kind of get us to current day. And then we want to talk a little bit about some of the research you have going on. We, we should say mm-hmm. that... Professor Michael Bartel is an assistant professor of international affairs at the Bush School of Government Public Service. This is his first year on mm-hmm. on the faculty. He's a historian uh, by profession, uh, which is a nice Makes addition. Nice okay. addition to our faculty amidst the political scientists and public administration people. Uh, We've learned a thing or two about historians from Mr. Coopersmith, or Professor Coopersmith. Yeah. It's complicated. It's complicated. That's what I've learned about stories. That's our motto. That's yes. your motto, yeah. yeah. Fritz, the floor is yours. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, I listened to Larry Knapper's uh, podcast. He said, it's nice to uncork with you guys. So, so I like that. <laughs> I like that. It's nice to uncork with you. Um, let's see. My intellectual and academic background, um, I did my PhD at Cornell University with uh, Frederick Logeval, a, a major historian of the Vietnam War. Um, I went to undergraduate, uh, my, did my undergraduate studies at the University of Toronto, where I had a number of very good professors, uh, as we all hopefully do, but they were, they all happened to be historians, so that's really what drew me to the field of history. I was always interested in international politics in general, and um, when I got there, I realized, or I, they convinced me that I had to learn the history of it in order really fully understand it and tell everyone that it was complicated. Um, and uh, when, I, when I got to Cornell, I, I initially came thinking I was going to write a PhD about the 1940s uh, and FDR's Atlantic Charter, which was kind of a document uh, stating the, the, the United States' highest principles and how they were going to apply to colonial peoples around the world and support free trade. Um, he didn't really use the terminology of human rights, but human rights was what we would now call it around the world and self-determination. Uh, turned out, once I got there, that that was not quite the project for me. So in my second year of graduate studies, as I think happens to many PhD students, I was at a loss for what to actually try to contribute to my field. And I read an article um, read an article that said that the communist bloc was $90 billion in debt to the capitalist world when the Berlin Wall came down. And uh, 
to my mind at that moment that made that really didn't make any sense. I, I had this idea, which I think still persists a little bit, that the, kind of, the Cold War meant that, and what it meant to me, soon get back to whether or not we're in a Cold War again, or, or if we're still in a Cold War. But one of the facets of the original Cold War was that the two blocks were economically kind of isolated from each other. And so the idea that the communist world was, was indebted to the capitalist world didn't make a lot of sense to me. And, and um, I went and searched for more answers and didn't find any in the existing literature, which for a graduate student is the perfect mm -hmm. uh, environment to be in because you have an important issue uh, and you have nothing written about it and you think maybe you can be the one to address this topic. Set the world straight. Yes, exactly. Um, so I set off on a, a multi-year journey to, to make that happen and um, it resulted in a, a dissertation which is now almost a book or in the, in the process of becoming a book on how economic factors in general um, led to the end of the Cold War. And so uh, that's that's what we're here to, to talk about today. So let's just jump right into it as kind of the, as the novice, just kind of remind people the big picture of the Cold War, what's going on, and then what are some of the economic factors that you found that impact? I mean, is it the case that the economies were more interdependent than we talk about from a historical standpoint? What did you learn about the kind of the ninety billion dollar yeah, yeah, debt? Yeah. Give us a little bit, uh, sure, a little bit more. Did so, anybody ever pay back that ninety billion dollar debt? They, well, they paid back some of it. Yes, over time, um, the Hungarians in particular were very fond of, of calculating how long they would be paying it back, and it went well into the two thousands. Um, the polls. Anyway, we'll get more into it. Some of them, yeah. some of the wise ones got their debt forgiven at the moment uh, of the end of the Cold War. Others were a bit too proud of, of their, and understandably so, but they, they wanted to pay it back because they felt it had been uh, taken under, under smart circumstances. Suckers. Uh, suckers, I guess, yeah. Um, anyway, so the Cold War from the late 40s, uh, mid to late 40s through the end of the 1980s, Kind of big time conflict between uh, the democratic capitalist world and the and the, the communist world. Uh, this the, the the challenge or the question at the heart of the end of the Cold War is why did it end peacefully? Um, in international relations scholarship, political science, and history, we we generally think of power transitions, the rise and fall of powers, uh, great powers in the international system, as a time. For conflict, mm -hmm. um, rising powers want to fight for what they believe is their theirs. Uh, falling powers want to defend what they think is should be theirs. And so, the major question that I set out to answer, and that I think lies at the heart of the end of the Cold War, is why did the Soviet Union basically just give up what it had fought um, for 30 million lives in the Second World War uh, to create, which was a security buffer. And, in, and, a, and a series of states, in, primarily in Eastern Europe, but around the world, uh, that were ideologically similar to, to their own states. Um, so, so why, on an international level, was there a peaceful outcome, and also why within states, in 1989, and what we now what we, we know as the revolutions, the peaceful revolutions of 1989, uh, why were those peaceful as well? Why did holders of authoritarian power give it up? 
with, with, with the notable exception of Romania, which Larry Knapper told us about on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And, and, and Romania is a, is a different case because it also had a lot of debt that it built up through the 1980s, uh, or excuse me, through the 1970s. And then it chose in the early 1980s, unlike everyone else, uh, to pay it back at the expense of its, uh, of its domestic population. As you heard about uh, from Professor Knapper in this course. So... Um, so th- this question of the peaceful outcome of the end of the Cold War is really where I uh, where I wanted to enter the debate, and the and the and economics might seem like an odd way to try and answer that, but essentially what I what I argue uh, is that oil and finance, uh, this debt and and oil as well, uh, which was coming from the Soviet Union and delivered to Eastern Europe at very favorable rates, uh, produced this outcome because. Ultimately, what the end of the Cold War was about was uh, authoritarian governments democratizing their political systems as a means of imposing austerity on their own people. Um, so, what I, what I, the way I frame it in this in this book is that the Cold War began as a race to expand social contracts in uh, societies in both East and West, and it ended as a race to discipline social contracts. Which side could discipline their social contract was the side that would prevail. Uh, which side could break promises is how I fr- phrase it. The Cold War began as a race to make promises, ended as a race to break promises. Uh, the communist world ultimately proved unable to break promises for a variety of reasons. Uh, but once they realized that, they tried democracy as a way of getting their population to accept economic austerity. Is the bottom line. But Fritz, if if oil is the is the other factor here, ah, Greg, you should know something about oil. Yes. <laughs> all of all of this happens after the collapse of oil prices. So why didn't it happen in the seventies when oil prices were high, and you and and these states had to borrow money to try to to pay for their imported oil? and the Soviets aren't getting the return on their imported oil that might have supported the state. Uh, The Soviets forewent all sorts of profits that they could have made if they had sold that oil on the open market in the 70s when oil prices were high. So uh, I understand that that all sorts of of oil-importing countries go into debt in the 70s to pay to continue to import oil, basically. But, but why does the imposition of austerity happen in the 80s when oil prices collapse? Yeah, well, it's, it's a great question. And it, it comes down to, I think, basically, um, the Soviet Union in the 1970s, as soon as, so my project, this book really begins in, with the oil crisis of 1973, when uh, oil prices quadruple. Uh, History begins in History, 1973 yes. for, for those, those of us who care about oil. It's generally complicated, but we know. But we know history begins in 1973, right? And so when it begins in 1973, it begins with a quadrupling of the price of oil. Uh, And what this means for the Soviet Union in particular is that it's it's now supporting its allies at a at a quadrupled rate because uh, it established. uh, There was no free markets, obviously, in communist countries, and so everything was on a contract price. Uh, and so the, the world market price overnight or within a matter of three or four months uh, 
quadrupled and the Soviet Union had this challenge, this question, do we support our allies and lose all of this money, or do we try to raise prices on them, which we know will cause political and social chaos uh, in, their, in their own countries. They, they end up coming with, up with this, uh, this rolling average, which basically subsidizes oil in the bloc uh, for the, the remainder of the 1970s and the early 1980s. And the reason it eventually happens in the late 1980s is because, as you say, uh, oil prices collapse in 1986. And the state, uh, now under Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, trying to reform the Soviet system, uh, realizes, comes to the conclusion that it has no more money left. Uh, it has no more means to support these countries. Uh, to maintain they, the empire. To maintain the empire. Um, so one of the more provocative claims, I guess, as a historian that I would make, that I make in the in the book, uh, is that no matter whether or not Gorbachev was in power in the late 1980s, the Soviet Union would have uh, let this whole thing collapse. This is, we generally think of the end of the Cold War as a process driven mostly by him. It, it's one of the, historians don't really like the great man theory of history anymore, uh, for, for very good reasons. But in this one instance, we, uh, many scholars do generally kind of ascribe to the idea that Gorbachev was this exceptional um, figure who was committed to peace, uh, committed to a new vision of Soviet society, and that vision had nothing, no, no room in it for, violent, for a violent crackdown in Eastern Europe. And as I've sorted through it over the years, I've come to the conclusion that, that yes, that's true, but even without that, other Soviet leaders simply because of the economics of the situation, also would have let the whole thing collapse. But, but there is a sense that, that there was choice in 89 for the Soviet leadership. Now, if they had chosen the crackdown, that might have led to a different kind of collapse of the empire, right? Uh, uh, when they couldn't pay the bills. But, but Gorbachev's more pacific notion of, of the Soviet Union becoming a, a, a normal country, quote-unquote, that is to say, having normal relations with the West, mm -hmm. had something to do with it, right? For the way this all happened. Yes. And, and people, can choose, people, people can choose different, when, when confronted with choices at crisis points, people can choose different, different ways to go down the, the tubes, right? Right. And I think, I think his ultimate effect was to make it... Um, hindsight, and, and perhaps at the time, uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't living through it in, in, conscious, uh, in conscious state. I was. Uh, <laughs> a surprisingly easy and quick and smooth uh, and relatively, um, uh, well, there was certainly a great deal of uncertainty on both sides, but, but it, was a, it was a surprisingly smooth and quick process. Remarkable. Um, I mean, amazing. Yeah, and, and that, was, that was largely due to his projection of this idea that that no matter what, the Soviet Union was not going to intervene. And a man like Vladimir Putin would no doubt have, have used the uncertainty of the moment to project a great deal more uh, uncertainty about Soviet or Russian intentions uh, and use that as leverage in the situation and, and Gorbachev was, was just not interested or, or not interested in using that or were not able to think in, in those terms. So yes, he has, a, he has an effect on kind of how it happened whether or not it would have happened ultimately, I think, is determined by the kind of uh, deeper structural forces. So there was a crisis coming. 
There was a crisis coming, and, uh, and no matter there what. wasn't enough perestroika to change the Soviet economy in a way that it could, in essence, grow itself out of the fiscal crisis that it faced. Right, and I think, so, when you look at things in comparative perspective, one of the things I try to do is look at kind of Reagan's America versus Gorbachev's uh, Soviet Union, and, and the victory in the Cold War, and it's, it's debatable how much of a victory it was, uh, was oh, this I don't idea... Know. I don't know. We won. They lost. <laughs> well, they, that no, is the prevailing notion. Ain't in some no question quarters. about that. Um, Hold it. The Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> are you trying to convince me that we all lost the coal? I mean, look, there are all these there academics, are all these academics who wrote their articles. We all lost the coal we war. Lost the blah coal blah war. blah. Right. I, I don't know. I, I I would much, you know, given the choice, would you rather have been in the Soviet Union or the United States in 1989? I think I'd rather States. have been in the United States. There's no doubt about it. Absolutely. I think the, the, the point I, I try to make, because I don't want to write the 17th article on how we yeah. all lost the end of the Cold War. Yes, we won, but by what means did we win? And one of, the, one of the effects, one of the ways in which we did was this idea that within the United States, particularly through uh, Paul Volcker's kind of interest rate shock, so this is where the financial element comes into play, um, the imposition of a much more unequal society within the United States, deindustrialization, a favoring of uh, holders of capital over the kind of basic uh, workers and the working class within the United States, uh, as a means of reorganizing capitalism and domestic production in, in the U.S., was a process that Volcker and Reagan were able to carry out it was not a pretty one. Millions of people lost their jobs. Uh, it was a, the biggest recession until the Great Recession of 2008, the biggest recession of the post-war period, uh, largely by choice. It was a matter of policy, unlike many other recessions. It was not coronavirus. It was not uh, an accident. The housing it was, bubble. It, it was, a, it was a, a deliberate act of policy to put millions of Americans out of work in the name of a longer-term Cool. In the name of ending what was a, a serious inflationary right. spiral in the United right. States, right? right? We had double-digit inflation right. uh, in the, I think in 79, probably up toward 18 percent, right? I mean, it was serious it was 12, inflationary. 13, 14, 12, 14, 14. Yeah. Um, so, so, so economic discipline in a variety of forms, whether it was via interest rates in capitalist countries or in, in socialist countries uh, through things like closing state-owned enterprise, cutting off state subsidies. Uh, these were the types of policy moves that socialist countries, uh, for reasons of ideology and reasons of politics, if you're a communist, it's pretty hard to say to the working class, um, screw you. Screw you, yes. Uh, it, it, it's a much more ideologically difficult task it's much more, much better in capitalism. It's much yeah. better in, in capitalism, <laughs> certainly. So, so there was kind of a... And yet a, all those workers voted for Reagan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, there's a whole, yes. Cultural, Reagan Democrats. Cultural politics and, and... And he did return a certain prosperity, of course, to, to the country. It was yeah. morning in America by 1984. At least that um, was the campaign. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And... and 
getting sidetracked from my own points here, but that was... <laughs> it's hard. That's okay. One of the, <laughs> that's one the, of the whole ways, purpose of the podcast. One of the ways in which... You think we invited you here for you to give your ideas. No, no it's for no. me to give my ideas. This is a good give and take. I, I can revise the book as There's still time. Yeah, there's time. You have some time. You have some time. Uh, but one of the things... So, beginning with the, the Reagan era, kind of the legacy, if we think of it in Cold War terms, the legacy of the Cold War, is that... The United States now, and for the past 40 years, has lived off the money of foreigners. Uh, we import capital uh, to a degree that people in the 1970s and, and early 1980s thought was unimaginable. Uh, when we default, all those suckers will really yeah. find out what the what the real score is. Yeah. So there's there's public debt and there's private debt, and both of them are. Um, whether or not they're out of control is, is not my question, but they are a product of this moment where we went through this period of economic discipline in the early 80s and in so doing attracted global capital from around the world. So if, you're, if you were a rich German, if you were a rich Saudi, if you were a rich Japanese, particularly a Japanese investor, all of a sudden you started investing in U.S. mortgage bonds, U.S. Uh, public debt, U.S. credit card debt of all kinds. And so the American dream now is underwritten uh, by foreign capitalists to, to a degree that during the, the kind of 70s and the early 1980s was, was unforeseen, right. was, was unimaginable. Well, was and that's a product of, of this, what I'm calling the Cold War in a very broad sense. So it brings up fascinating questions for today. Which we'll get back to the Cold War because I do want I do want to talk about that. But the the return on the U.S. Treasury bond, the ten year U.S. Treasury bond, fell below one percent today, right. as as capital fled to safety, and the market, the stock markets, U.S. stock markets took another beating. So is the reverse of your theory true? I mean, would you say Donald Trump is a betrayer of the financial class? I mean, interest rates are as low as they have been in the modern history of the United States right now. Um, so I wouldn't say, no, Donald Trump is not a betrayer. He kind of ran on some rhetoric that was, uh, right. that and was then trying he, to betray or, or, right. or and then correct he, the, the, the inequalities. But, but, but then he put forward a tax bill that you know was vastly... Uh, slanted to benefit the, those who are wealthy. Right. And that's completely enabled by the system that Ronald Reagan discovered unwittingly, right? Because Donald Trump, or, or and this is true of, of Democrats and Republicans, the, 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 the lack of uh, a notion that, that means have to balance each other, so expenses and, and income have to balance each other. Um, Just have the Chinese kind of pay for it. general confidence that the debt markets will fund it. Uh, comes from this period, and and precisely because of the ten-year Treasury note being so so cheap, um, there's no sign of it slowing down anytime soon. So, uh, but we but are not we are not on the precipice of this system collapsing. No, think. not in the least. I mean, we're attracting more foreign yeah. capital than, than probably ever. we ever have. But yeah. but isn't it tough to argue that? The signal of austerity was high interest rates in the early 80s, and that screwed the workers. 
and now we have a, a period of incredibly low interest rates, and that's also to the advantage of the of finance capital and the capitalist class. Uh, well, the taxes on capital have gone down so much since the early 1980s that I, you're still getting a, a substantial return. And, Not at 1%, and, but yeah. And markets are, particularly equity markets, have had yes. a, a return in the last, over the past decade, right? If you were invested in the stock market, and I was. it was a much better time to be invested in the stock market than to be an average worker. Oh, that's for sure. You, your wages are going up. Although the last week has been pretty tough. Yes. Uh, For I, those of us looking at our retirement accounts. Michael accounts. Bloomberg, I feel bad as he's trying to fund this presentation. <laughs> you should. <laughs> Think I'm of sure it. he's diversified in a number of um, Hopefully not into treasury bonds. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yes, it, it's, it's, I think it, it favors capital right now, uh, partially because there is so much of it. Um, it's, it's tough, in a way, to be a capitalists looking for a good return because Amen. the supply and demand is so out of whack because there's just so much easy money, there's so much money floating through the system um, that you can't find the returns that were there in the 1980s. I'm thinking about refinancing, that's for sure. So so I've gotten you too much into current events. Uh, let's dangerous go back. Area for let's, go, let's go back. It's a dangerous area for political scientists as well. We're usually wrong. Yeah. <laughs> usually, usually interestingly wrong. Yeah, um, entertainingly wrong. So austerity. Yes. Most people point to Poland as the first place that the Soviet Empire starts to crack with solidarity, and 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 the the, the labor movement in Poland. Mm -hmm. Is that a result of austerity? It is. Yes. Uh, and this was something I was uh, I didn't go in kind of anticipating arguing, but. Uh, can see very clearly, and some of the most noted historians of this period um, argue that there was no economic spark to Solidarity's reemergence in the late 1980s. That, that these revolutions really were political, kind of politically inspired, basically by Gorbachev. Uh, and when you look at it closely, what the Polish government was trying to do was implement an austerity program that was demanded of them by the International Monetary Fund. So run run the chronology for us, just a sure. So so beginning in the early 1970s, um, there's there's the first kind of worker. Well, not the first, but the first in my chronology because history begins, begins in, in 1973. Early 1970s. <laughs> uh, a, a workers' rebellion uh, that the, the Polish government violently puts down at first, but then eventually they they switch leaderships. Uh, kind of all the way at the top of the government and set out on this new modernization strategy. It's when this guy Gomolka comes Gomolka's in re president. replaced, oh, he's replaced. By, by Edward Gierick. By Gierick, yes, right. In okay. the 1970s. Um, they, they set out on this, this strategy where they say, basically, we're going to take out a bunch of loans from, from hard currency loans from the West. One of the key, I guess we should say, factors of communist countries, they don't have currencies that are transferable into Western currency. So if you want to buy something, if you're the Polish government and you want to buy something, they won't take slotnies. Well, from the West Germans, you need some dollars. Either dollars or West German money. So you have to go to a Western bank to get that loan. And that's what they do. And, and over the course of the 1970s, their debt goes from something like $450 million to $22 billion. 
and that's what as a percentage of GDP. Is it a hundred percent of GDP? Is I don't actually. I'm not sure. Okay. Um, I'd have to. I'd have to go back and look at it. But uh, it's it's a substantial sum where on an annual basis they're paying two to three billion dollars uh, in interest payments, and uh, or they have to roll this over via new loans from the West. Um, Refinance. Refinancing, yes. So by the late 1970s, they're they're dependent, and in the 1970s was a very good decade to be similar to the last decade, uh, to be a debtor uh, because you had real interest rates that were basically zero. Inflation. Yes, so inflation's 10%, let's say, uh, but your interest rate might be 10%, and therefore the, the real interest rate that you're paying is, is nothing as a borrower. Um, that all changes in 1979 when Paul Volcker Paul comes in as the Fed chairman and says, in order to solve a domestic problem in the United States, we need to raise interest rates within the United States, but that affects everyone internationally. And so Poland can no longer access capital markets on a, to a level that they, <coughs> they see um, that they need in order to service the debt. And that produces the first wave of solidarity in the early 1980s. So what does the Polish government do that, that to Enforce austerity. What what are the examples of austerity that it enforces on so its the, own so population? The prime, the, in Poland, it's always uh, price increases on basic consumer goods. Okay. So, um, bread. Yes, bread, meat, uh, cheese, the, the, the basics: beer, alcohol, or tobacco. Uh, the basics of Polish life. Uh, all of vodka. These, all of these uh, vodka certainly. Uh, all of these prices are set by the government and, and as part of communist ideology are uh, the promise to the people is that they will remain low and affordable uh, because, of course, the state is meant to serve the working class. So as soon as the debt burden is taken out on the working class uh, via these price increases, um, that's when uh, the working class starts to find a problem with their ruling class and they, they uh, start to revolt. And this is where we see solidarity, the this solidarity is, so movement. Solidarity emerges in 1980 uh, and in December of 1981 it is uh, violently put down uh, via the introduction of martial law in Poland. Uh, so there's a, a military government that's, that runs Poland for all of the 1980s. Um, what was the name of the general? Jaruzelski. General Jaruzelski. That's right. Yes. Um, he, he always wore sunglasses inside. Right. That was his ah, I want to see primary. That guy. I want to pull that off. Yeah. I can't. I'm because he, he had, um, of course, someone else was some, someone some else was elected in 1979. That 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 oh. that complicated things in Poland. John Paul II, right? That's true. Yes. So. You would know the Catholic <laughs> reference. Yeah. Yes. Pretty important in Poland. He was. He was, no doubt about it. Um, he, every time he came, it was a it was a international event. Yes. Um, I remember. I remember watching the news, and when he first went back to Poland after being elected pope, and uh, the millions of people that turned out for for one of the masses, and I just remember the. The, the, whoever it was, the foreign correspondent for American TV network, basically saying, Stalin asked, how many divisions does the Pope have? 
and he points behind, <laughs> he points behind him and says, there they are. Right. So I, I have two Cold War questions uh, yes. that are related to your topics. One's thinking about more current, one's uh, comes from some literature I've read. So I've been reading a book on space flight Great. and the history of space exploration. And uh, I read at other times that one of the one of the things that historians would say about the fall of the Soviet Union was that they outspent themselves trying to keep up with the U.S. military and that space was a big piece of that. Mm-hmm. What I've been reading now kind of downplays that, suggests maybe that wasn't as large a role. So from the finance perspective, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about uh, this kind of showmanship between the U.S. and Soviet Union for showcasing their military capabilities in space. Did that actually have any kind of real meaningful impact on their finances is the first question. And then I want to bring it back to current uh, politics and talk about some of the current relationship between the between U.S. and Russia in particular and how some of that still does have some ties into the Cold War and your your thoughts on that were two sure. questions I had. Yeah. yeah. So um, on the first question of – so Star Wars was Ronald Reagan's well, – was, that was – Titled his critics gave this mm-hmm. uh, this program the Strategic Defense Initiative where we were going to shoot down Soviet missiles um, in outer space. Anti missile missile defense. Missile defense. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the latest evidence that I I've seen is that it, yes, it, it very clearly did have an effect on Soviet positions and Soviet bargaining in the on the specific issue of nuclear weapons. Um, I think where that debate, what you're referencing, uh, got off track is that the kind of Reagan, the so-called Reagan victory school of the Cold War, said that pretty, it was a pretty simple equation. Reagan increases military spending, and and the Soviets kind of see this, get scared, and all of a sudden collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, of course a lot more to the story, and so you could imagine a situation in which um, the Soviets see that the United States has, has uh, this massive finan- military power which is ultimately underwritten by its financial wealth and they can't they feel they can't match it and so they are desperate to try and uh, come to an agreement that prevents space competition over military weapons um, I think that was probably going to happen kind of regardless mm-hmm. and then all of the other factors domestic foreign ideological, come together to produce what we know as the end of the Cold War, um, but it's it's certainly not the, the kind of simple equation that the, the Reagan Victory School uh, has, has painted it to be. In the same way where it's Gorbachev isn't the only picture of the peace of this coming down towards the end of the Cold right. War, you just, it's much more complicated, I work in history No, term. no, no, but it's, it's, it's not just that, right? It's the, the, the more sophisticated version of the Reagan Victory dance theory of the end of the Cold War is that by increasing defense spending, he places the Soviet leadership who are suffering from a fiscal crisis right. in front of really severe choices. Right. right? If you're gonna if you're gonna compete with the United States, you gotta find a way to to improve your economic efficiency so you can extract more revenue from your domestic society, maybe even from your empire. And, and play catch-up, right? And in order to do that, Gorbachev basically says, okay, we've got to roll the dice on a big reform. Right. And that's the thing that kind of breaks the, 
breaks the system. They can't. They can't manage. To. They can't manage the social transformations that Gorbachev's vision requires, and the place falls apart. I think. I think the maybe to draw a little bit to current events or recent events. There's no doubt that the Reagan administration and the CIA and, and the U.S. government in general were were right on, and it's amazing to read the extent to which they were accurately perceiving that the Soviet Union was economically in a very, very difficult spot. And they crafted a strategy, multifaceted, uh, to try and kind of exacerbate the, the choices faced by the Soviet leadership between, as they, they just clearly said, the military, the, their allies, and their, their own people. And they were hoping eventually a Soviet leader would come along who chose their own people over their military and their allies. And that's precisely what they got in Gorbachev. Now, they could not have, I mean, they, it, wasn't, it wasn't just US policy that produced that. Right. So they got lucky in, in, a, in a way. And I think the danger in terms of what, uh, another thing historians will always tell you is that you can't replicate situations across time. What we tried to do is we've seen other situations where a potential adversary or some a country that the United States wants to think of as an adversary faces economic problems. And we think it might be as easy as let's apply some pressure and it will automatically produce a Gorbachev type of scenario. This is like the Iran strategy. Maximum pressure on Iran. Right. And, and, exactly. and the max, from what I read, the people like Pompeo are reading about Reagan's strategy as a means of well, ideologues believe what they want to believe. Right, and it's just, unfortunately, um, not, that, not that simple. I'm here to deliver yet another. It's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. Uh, but that's, that's just the truth of it. So, so um, thanks so much. We could continue on. Um, yeah, we, don't, we, don't, we haven't even talked about Hungary, Romania, oh Czechoslovakia. That'll have to be for another podcast. Well, it means we should have we should have him back. Yeah, I think, I think so. so. All right. Thank you very much. We do have a couple of audience members this evening, so we promised them an opportunity to ask any questions that they might have. So now's your your uh, chance. Any questions from the crowd? The hundreds of people who have attended hundreds and hundreds. tonight's podcast. <laughs> yes, sir. Can you specify an exact date when the Cold War ended? Can you specify an exact date when the Cold War ended? It's always, it will be eternally debated. The Cold War uh, was always about, ultimately, it, it began as a geopolitical conflict, at least as a, as a debate over German power. And the idea that uh, the Soviet Union would peacefully retreat and just give up control over this territory that had launched an attack on its own country and not demand that the United States do the same uh, is really the kind of fundamental power shift. It's the signal of, the, of, the, of a shift in global power that, that signals the end of the Cold War. So that's what I would say, but... I'll, I'll, I'll suggest okay. a couple of other yeah, dates. Please. Uh, either August... Fourth or fifth, when the Soviet Union voted for the the UN Security Council resolutions calling for Iraq to get out of Kuwait, yep. uh, and and maybe even later in November when the Soviet Union supported the use of force against a Soviet ally, right. Iraq had a, a a treaty of friendship and cooperation with the Soviet Union. 
over the over the invasion of Kuwait. And then, of course, the kind of the more prosaic one is when the Soviet Union dissolved. Yes. Which was late 1991, right. November of 1991. Well, I forget. December, December of, of 1991. Right. You can, you can, it all depends on how you define the Cold War, of course, and that's, that's will produce your, your definition. Looks like we have maybe one more question? Yeah. Uh, so did American financiers at all try to pressure the U.S. government to push Eastern European countries to pay back the debt? They had borrowed that by the you know late 1980s. Yes, it's a it's a great question, and they, they definitely did. And um, one of the things that that was nice about the U.S. government and, and governments in general is that much of the debt was guaranteed by the state governments, whether it was the West German government, the British government, the American government. So uh, Gu- guaranteed to the Western lenders, to the bank. So it was risk free for the bank itself. Uh, to make the loan, and so it was really a matter of deciding whether or not a co- particular country was in default on the loan, and then the government would pick up the tab and, and pay Chase Manhattan Bank or, or whatever bank it might be. Um, I don't know if, if Citibank's a sponsor; they probably wouldn't be the same. <laughs> no, no. Uh, we have no, we have no, we have no corporate sponsors on the podcast. But the banks were were very interested in, of course, getting their money back much more than fighting the Cold War itself. All right. Thanks again. Thanks so much for being here. This was a lot of fun. We'll have to have you back, hopefully. We uh, barely scratched the surface. I know. We're just getting started. And uh, we're going to take a little bit of a week break, um, so we won't have immediate... Well, that's not true. We won't, have a, we won't have any un, downtown uncorked being live here recordings for two weeks, but Greg and I actually... You may hear from oh, Greg and I... True. Sooner than you get this episode, depending on what decisions fate makes. We're, we're hoping to do some hot takes based on the Super Tuesday results on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And then we'll see how soon Faith can work her magic and get those up online. Yeah. Faith is the real boss, as it turns out. Uh, but we will take a break for spring break, and then we will be uh, back with Andrew Natios in two weeks. So thanks so much for listening. Thanks again to our guests. Thanks for being here, Fritz, Greg. And we'd like to thank our hosts from down here at Downtown Uncorked in... Historic. Historic Downtown, downtown Brian. I'm still mailing. No, you're no. It's taken. A, it took a year, but you're now. You got historic downtown Brian. It did take me a while. And uh, thanks for having us. We really appreciate it.